Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM, AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, reflecting into the Church Fathers. We are in the figure of St. Benedict. We felt that uh, one week just wasn't enough. Huh? These Church Fathers of the uh, post-Golden Age of Doctrine, um, we have spent a lot of time with these Fathers, from St. Jerome uh, to St. Augustine, huh? And here we are talking about St. Benedict. I mean, these are giants. And with St. Benedict, we had the opportunity to, last week, really get into some key biographical pieces. And as I noted in the end of last week, uh, we were going to get into uh, the rule, uh, more specifically, and certainly the impact of the Benedictines. So I very much look forward to this program, a very important program in its subject matter. My sense is that uh, this program and its subject matter is just of great value to understanding where we come from. And it is Tuesday, so that means I have John O'Hara with me to discuss all of this. So, John, it is great to have you with me another evening. Great to be back again, Joe. So, before we get into the rule, John, and before we get into the impact of the Benedictines uh, upon Western civilization, last week you briefly mentioned... St. Benedict's sister. St. Scholastica. Yeah, yes, St. Scholastica. And I had it in my notes to talk about her, and we just never got a chance to. So I thought we could talk about her a little bit. And it's so fascinating to me, John. You know, if you go into these church fathers, and we've noted this on one or two other occasions, a lot of these church fathers, a lot of these figures have siblings who are lesser known saints. And you know, what's going on there? Well, when you have a family that is pious, that is devoted, that is a family of prayer, well, that's going to produce saints. And if you put that kind of devotion in a time where there's a great deal of turmoil, well, that is a saint-making machine. You know? <laughs> and uh, so we have St. Benedict, and we have this heroic sister, uh, St. Scholastica, who, oh, by the way, is actually St. Benedict's twin, Huh. So here you have this man who, who has founded this community, and uh, his twin sister uh, would, as we will talk about here, uh, founded a community just five miles away, founded a monastery uh, with his rule just five miles away. So pretty important. We have mentioned in the past mothers who had a huge mm-hmm. influence on their sons, mm-hmm. and I believe Origen had a couple of, at least one sister who was a saint. St. Scholastica, I think her feast day is sometime at the end of January. Yeah, I believe it was February 10th. February 10th. And Benedict's rule was adopted by women in convents. So it is, it is rather, it's an, adoptable, it's an adaptable rule. And um, they would meet once a year and, and talk. And they met, the last time they met, they talked for the day, and then as it got to be evening, he said, I have to go back to Monte Cassino. She said, oh, let's stay and talk about God a little bit longer. I really Mm. would like to. And they spent the entire night Mm. talking about God and holiness and humility and how every 
five minutes of our life is given to God and it's holy and it should be taken that way. Mm-hmm. And then he went back to Monte Cassino and later on it began to thunder and lightning and he thought, this may be a sign about my sister and sure enough she had died. Mm. So this was their last meeting together. Mm. Holy uh, brother and sister, quite touching to read the account. Yeah. You know, there's something that uh, John Paul II talked about on one occasion in a homily. Uh, I remember going through his stuff, and he talked about the importance of what he called simply holy conversation. Holy conversation. That all of our conversation needs to be grounded in truth, needs to be rooted in truth, and, and needs to render that disposition of that listening ear, and to really engage in that dialogue so that all of our personal encounters with one another would give impetus to a desire to live more holy lives. I think this is so important, and, and even bringing this up now, John, this, this, this dialogue, this encounter, this last encounter between uh, St. Benedict and St. Scholastic is important because so many of our encounters, so many of our conversations lack that holiness. Mea culpa. Yes. You know, we talk about culpa, very, yeah. uh, very trivial things. You know, <laughs> I mean, some practical things you need to talk about. Finances, uh, who's making dinner tonight, those kinds of things. Yeah, but even those, even those can be holy conversations when they're rooted in hearts that are, are seeking always to do the will of God. And I can only imagine uh, that is what that last conversation looked like. If we get into his humility, his 12 list of humility, one of the things he does not want to see is laughter. Now, I don't. I think he wants the, them to be happy. The type of laughter is that guffaw that men will do. You mm-hmm. can hear that a lot. I've been mm-hmm. And it's fun. Didn't want that. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's Old Testament stuff there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Old Testament talks about that. Um, that kind of careless laughter, that kind of careless joking. And this is the kind of trivial thing that John Paul II was talking about. Don't get lost in these trivial conversations. Let them be holy. So it's a real challenge for all of us, I think, John, to really enter into the spirit that uh, St. Benedict and St. Scholastica entered into uh, that last night together. So maybe with that, John, we can jump into uh, into these 12 points What lies at the heart of this rule is St. Benedict's uh, 12 points uh, for humility. So we're not going to just read page after page in in what he has on these 12 points, but we will bullet point uh, his 12 points of humility, and then we're going to to wrap that up with some key points so as to understand why, (laughs) why humility is so foundational, just not for the Benedictine, John, as we know, but certainly for all of us. First step of humility, then, is that a man keeps fear of God always before his eyes. The second step is that a man doesn't do his own desires and doesn't take pleasure in them. Uh, Rather, he shall imitate his actions by saying to the Lord, I have not come to do my will, but your will. The third step is that a man submits to his superiors in all obedience for love of God. Fourth, step of humility is that the obedience under difficult and unfavorable or even unjust conditions, his heart quietly embraces the suffering. Even if you're asked to do something, that's a pain in the neck. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. The yep. fifth step of humility is that a man does not conceal from his abbot any sinful thoughts entering his heart. Mm. St. Benedict's first chapter is on what it, the qualities of an abbot. That's a very mm-hmm. famous uh, chapter, and it because this is what a Christian leader should be, is what that abbot is. Okay, yeah. the sixth step of humility 
as the monk is content with the lowest and most menial treatment in regards to himself. The seventh step of humility is that a man not only admits with his tongue, but is also convinced in his heart that he is inferior to all and of less value. The eighth step of humility is that a monk does only what is endorsed by the common rule of the monastery. The ninth is that a monk controls his tongue and remains silent. Hmm. The tenth step of humility is that he not be given to ready laughter, mm-hmm. for it is written, only a fool mm. raises his voice in laughter. Mm. The eleventh step of humility is that a monk speaks gently and without laughter, seriously and with becoming modesty, mm. briefly and reasonably. And the twelfth step of humility is that a monk always manifests humility in his bearing, no less than in his heart, so it is evident that the work of God in the oratory of the monastery or the garden is on display. You want to be an example. Those are his 12 steps. Mm. Amen. Those are rich. Those and are if I rich. Could add another little point. He was writing about leading a good Christian life. Mm-hmm. This is the first rule that is, it goes only to the Bible. Remember, our Augustine and many of our other writers all went to uh, pagan philosophers as part of their background. Yeah, yeah. Not so Benedict. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'd like to point out The Cloister World, a book by Kathleen Norris. Now, she is a Protestant, married with children, and she wrote, how do you adopt this rule to a married people who are not Catholic? Another one, a professor of theology at Wabash College by the name of Eric Dean. He is mm-hmm. a Calvinist, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book called Benedict for the Laity. Again, how Benedict applies to a sincerous Christian way of life. Yeah, the spirit of this rule uh, crosses denominational lines yes. for sure, and, and I think that's an important point that you're making here, John. And and why? Because again, <laughs> humility rests at the foundation of our spiritual life. I mean, humility is about becoming a member of the anawim of God. You know, the the anawim of God in the Old Testament are the poor ones. The Hebrew word anawim literally means bent over or kneeling. Okay, this is the disposition of humility. And now what's interesting about this, John, I have talked a great deal in the past on this topic of humility as it relates to poverty, because when you talk about spiritual poverty, or as the Catechism of the Catholic Church likes to call it, poverty of heart, you're talking about voluntary humility. I think that's St. Gregory of Nyssa, who we discussed, huh? Mm -hmm. So, Uh, spiritual uh, poverty is a voluntary humility. And what this, of course, crystallizes is what the first beatitude is all about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What St. Benedict wants to enshrine in this rule is that first beatitude, because he understood if we captured that first beatitude, which ultimately is the foundation for the whole Sermon on the Mount, okay, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, then ultimately we will be well on our way. We would be well on our way if we lived in that voluntary humility. Is that blessed are the poorest spirit? Theirs is the, the kingdom, kingdom of God, God. Okay. yes. And ushering the kingdom of God, ushering in the kingdom of heaven here on earth is quintessential to the task because as we talked about last week, right? Man and mission. So that first beatitude is about man. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And remember, John, spirit, the Greek word panuma, uh, breath, lung. Blessed are those who long for God the same way our lungs long for air. That's the essence of that first beatitude. And I love that truth that comes through. You know, 
It's not so much what Jesus says, it's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, um, per se, give to the poor or give alms, all of these noble tasks. He says it, but after he says that first beatitude, because he understands if we're going to properly enter into that mission, we must first have a deeper understanding of who we are before God. And that's where it starts, in that voluntary humility. And wow, when you start to think about what Benedict is talking about there and really incorporate it into our lives. When I think of Jesus, when in John's gospel, when he first meets his apostles, what's the attraction? They didn't know who he was really. He must have had, I don't know, the real McCoy. I will use that. There mm-hmm. must have been truth. I'm thinking of St. Benedict. When he was at uh, Subiaco in that cave, people came, wanted him to lead them. Mm-hmm. Why? Why this kid? He must have been the real McCoy. There must mm-hmm. have been real truth there. And it developed as he went on. And that, we're all looking for truth. Mm-hmm. And here was somebody who seemed to have it in himself. Amen. You know, John, we used the word attractive last week. And certainly that's an important word. But that word bespeaks almost that more magnetic. It's You're just pulled into it. And, and this is the kind of energy force of the Holy Spirit. And so when someone is living in the spirit of truth, when someone has surrendered all to God, that light of Christ is going to shine through. And we are drawn to that light. Like that image we, we had last week of, of the lighthouse. You know, it just shines in the yeah. darkness. We're just drawn to it. And we need it. We need it because, again, um, <laughs> this was a period... This was a period where there was a great deal of darkness. And as St. Gregory the Great said, you know, St. Benedict was a luminous star in a very dark night of history. And so, yeah, many people were drawn to that luminous star up in the cave so that they might get a deeper sense of of meaning in their life. And so this is important. And there's something else about humility, John, I wanted to talk about. What humility does is it it squashes pride. You know, we spend so much time protecting ourselves. And in so doing, what we end up doing is we don't enter into this person who God is calling us to be. So what humility does is essentially it frees us up, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. It unlocks the chain so that we are now able to do what God is asking us to do. We don't spend all of this time protecting this false self that pride often does. No, we just enter into a task as God is asking us to enter into a task. This is what made the Benedictines so great. Think of that comment about laughter. All of us are attracted to it, and all of us like the man who is funny and has mm-hmm. jokes, and we all like it. How necessary is it? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. of course I like humor. And I would like to be the life of the party. Mm-hmm. But is that what Christ wants? Well, that's it. And it's a great question, John, because I, I think the distinction can be had when you start talking about joy. Are we joyful or are we happy? Laughter. I mean, which, what, what belongs to what? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Okay, It belongs mm. to the grace of God. And happiness, happenstance, is passing. Now, humor is a good thing, and certainly it can be therapeutic. But what's the context of the humor, right? Jesus Christ enjoyed a laugh. But what's the context, right? I mean, so we need to draw back and say, 
are we drawing attention unto ourselves? Because this is the great danger. Yes. I was with my family this past Thanksgiving day, and we were talking, and we were sharing a lot of good laughs, and we actually turned on a podcast of a comedian, and we laughed. He's a Catholic comedian, mm. Christian comedian. He was very funny, and it, in context, was very funny. He didn't play yes. out of bounds yeah. of some of his language, but how many comedians have we listened to that are more than just a little edgy, but way, way off the cuff, huh? Yeah. Um, so certainly, what lies at the heart of, of Benedict's vision when it comes to this is, are you drawing attention to yourself in an unhealthy way? I mean, that's the bottom line, because that is not the way of humility. That is not the way of humility. And so, in light of all this, I wanted, John, to get into the outgrowth of this spiritual leaven that we are talking about, okay? okay? Um, Because if a civilization, if a culture is going to grow in the truth of Christ, it must have that spiritual leaven. And as we talk about it now, that spiritual leaven is that voluntary humility, that spiritual poverty. Because ultimately, when you render everyone around you more important than yourself, then you're simply going to achieve that much more. And this was the life of the Benedictine. And when you begin to think about the size of these Benedictine communities, we can well imagine that, uh, yeah, it's going to have a huge impact. I want to draw from the historian Thomas Woods. He gets into essentially how the Catholic Church uh, built Western civilization, and the Benedictines was at the very heart of this. So I'm just going to... Uh, read a little bit here from Thomas Woods, and it's just going to, I think, speak for itself. And here he's talking about the Benedictines, he's talking about how they contributed to uh, the practical arts. And he says this, Although most educated people think of the medieval monasteries' scholarly and cultural pursuits as their contribution to Western civilization, we should not overlook the monks' important cultivation of what might be called the practical arts. Agriculture, for example, is a particular significant example. In the early 20th century, Henry Goodell, president of what was then the Massachusetts Agricultural College, celebrated the work of these grand old monks during a period of 1,500 years. And as he would say, they saved agriculture when nobody else could save it. They practiced it under a new life and new conditions when no one else dared undertake it. Testimony, Thomas Wood says, on this point is considerable. We owe the agricultural restoration of a great part of Europe to the Benedictine monks. Wherever they came, adds still another, they converted the wilderness into a cultivated country. They pursued the breeding of cattle and agriculture, labored with their own hands, drained morasses, and cleared away forests. By them, and only them, Germany was rendered a fruitful country. Think about that, John. (laughs) Another historian records that every Benedictine monastery was like an agricultural college for the whole region in which it was located. Even the 19th century French statement and historian Francois Gazot, who was not especially sympathetic to the Catholic Church, observed the Benedictine monks were the agriculturists of Europe. They cleared it on a large scale, associating agriculture with preaching. So, 
As Thomas Woods goes on to say, manual labor expressly called for in the rule of St. Benedict played a central role in the monastic life. And I think this is very insightful here, John, what he's about to say and really dovetails what we were just talking about. Although the rule was known for its moderation and its aversion to exaggerated penances, we often find the monks freely embracing work that was difficult and unattractive, since for them such tasks were channels of grace and opportunities for mortification of the flesh. This goes right back to the 12 points, really, John, huh? So, he goes on. This was certainly true in the clearing and reclaiming of land. The prevailing view of swamps was that they were sources of pestilence utterly without value. But the monks thrived in such locations and embraced the challenges that came with them. Before long, they managed to dike and drain the swamp and turn what had once been a source of disease and filth into fertile agricultural land. Wow! There's a particularly vivid example of the monks' salutary influence on their physical surroundings uh, that comes from Southampton, England. Uh, In the 7th century, this was observed. It was nothing but a vast morass. The fens in the 7th century were probably like the forest at the mouth of the Mississippi or the swamp shores of the Carolinas. It was a labyrinth of black, wandering streams, broad lagoons, morasses submerged every spring tide, vast beds of reed and sedge and fern, vast copses of willow, alder and gray poplar rooted in the floating peat, which was swallowing up slowly, all devouring, yet all preserving, the forests of fir and oak, ash and poplar, hazel and yew, which had once grown in that low rank soil. Trees torn down by flood and storm floated and lodged in rafts, damming the waters back upon the land. Streams bewildered in the forest changed their channels, mingling silt and sand with the black soil of the peat. Nature, left to herself, ran into a wild riot and chaos more and more, till the whole fen became one dismal swamp. Wow, to be able to look at that and to figure out a way to improve it, to get that water out of there with pipes or whatever pumps they were able to do. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. You know, here is as he talks about it, you know, they they embraced the challenges to dike and to drain the swamp and to turn it into this fertile agricultural land. It is an extraordinary feat by men who were able to do it because again, they were drawing John from that spiritual leaven. They are drawing from that source of grace and just the plain brute tenacity to be able to roll up your sleeves. And uh, this gives new meaning to the phrase work in the tall grass. Huh? I mean, work in the, in the tall marsh. I mean, just an extraordinary thing to see these men do what they do. And something else, John, is the way in which they had to work together. Phenomenal. You know, there is a story that I heard in preparing for this, that in Georgia, there was a 1960s hippie commune on top of a hill looking down on a Benedictine monastery. Mm. And uh, the hippie commune has come and gone. Mm -hmm. And a visitor was uh, talking to a monk, and he heard the story, and the monk says, you know, we we told him, come on down. We've been in the commune business for 1,500 years. We can tell you how to maybe organize your uh, your facility, they didn't come down, and now they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, 
You know, and not only were they good engineers, not only did they look at the swamps that they saw and figure out ways to improve it, uh, they were holy. We had eight times a day they gathered in their oratory to sing their psalms. Mm -hmm. They went through all 150 psalms once a week. Mm. And he didn't want, he wasn't trying to exhaust him. You know, we had meals, and in fact, uh, as you know, he wanted two cooked meals at every meal because mm-hmm. you may not like one of them. Yep, yep. And and we had more food during the uh, sometimes and less food during other times, depending upon what time of year and what the work was. So it was a practical situation. But notice that he wanted an abbot, a strong abbot, mm-hmm. the kind of, uh, and you obeyed the abbot, and that gave order to it. Yeah. The abbot was to be seen as a a gentle father, but strict teacher. Mm. That was kind of the the idea there. A, a gentle father, but strict teacher. The combination of the two allowed these monasteries to grow exponentially. And this was part of their attraction. A gentle father, yet at the same time, strict when he needed to be strict. This was elemental to the life of... A Benedictine monastery. I'm looking down at some numbers here, John. Uh, as mere statistics can hardly do justice to the Benedictine achievement, uh, consider these numbers. Uh, the order had supplied the church with 24 popes, 200 cardinals, 7,000 archbishops, 15,000 bishops, and over 1,500 canonized saints. You are at, kidding. At its height. At its height. Are you ready for this? The Benedictine order could boast, for all of you listeners out there, are you going to guess how many monasteries at its height they could boast? Maybe 1,000, maybe 5,000, maybe 10,000. John, try 37,000 monasteries at its height. It's no wonder that they transformed Europe, huh? That is beautiful. It's extraordinary, and I, John. And, I, and I, I, miss, I miss that. Yeah. You know, I... I, I <laughs> The world misses that. Yeah, they brought some depth and uh, example that was good. Uh, that's well said, John. You know, Pope Paul VI, on October 24th, 1964, consecrated Europe to St. Benedict and declared him patron of Europe. Why? Well, <laughs> Europe had just gone through two world wars, and for all intents and purposes, it had been savaged. They needed the spirit of St. Benedict and its capacity to produce and to build and to essentially erect a new civilization, a new springtime for the church. And so it is right. We are called to uh, get back into what St. Benedict was all about so that we might be ones, John, you, me, and all of our listeners, uh, one that participates in the rebuilding of Western civilization. Amen. I'm looking up at the clock here, John, and we are out of time. Boy, this went fast. (laughs) There's much more to talk about there, but I I really do think we got the essence of St. Benedict over these past few weeks. I think it was good to get into his rule a little bit. Uh, It could be a whole other program and then some to break down all those 12 points, but collectively to understand what lies underneath the spirit of that rule and how it impacts our mission uh, and how we took stock, really, in how it shaped Western civilization is so important. And let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.